When we think about the Apostle Paul, we can't help but be amazed and be impressed because we can't help but remember his tenacity. Uh, We can't help but remember his zeal for the Lord and for God's people. And of course, there, there was his courage, courage against hardship in light of opposition and suffering. Not to mention the sheer remarkable ability that he had to push through physical pain of illness and injuries. When we read Paul's writings, we read that he suffered from some debilitating illnesses and he was often beaten. He suffered terribly. And so when we think about all these uh, remarkable qualities in Paul, how he was so faithful, he pushed through physical pain, These and other qualities make it really easy for us to admire him. And it's very easy for us to hold him up as our hero. And of course, that's right. It is right to honor the honorable, and it is right to praise the praiseworthy. Still, I think it is possible for us to forget that Paul was a man just like us. And we see that clearly in this passage because Paul arrived in Corinth feeling very inadequate and he was afraid. He was a man just like us. And that, the fact that he arrived in Corinth full of fear, feeling insufficient, weak, This provides us a window not only into Paul's inner soul, but it also gives us a window into God's wisdom. The God who said in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. And indeed, that's what we see here. God's Grace, God's power that is made perfect in Paul's weakness. And so the first thing we see in this passage is the fact that Paul faces daunting challenges. Paul faces daunting challenges. So as you remember, in chapter 7, Paul addressed the Areopagus in Athens. And after that, Paul traveled 60 miles west and arrived in Corinth, another city in Greece. And as you know, Paul will later send two letters to the Corinthians. And so when we look at these two letters that Paul sent, 1st and 2nd Corinthians, and together with the rich historical data about Corinth, we gain an insight as to why Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, and I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling, and my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom. And so I think it would be beneficial for us to to think about why Paul arrived in Corinth in weakness. He felt so weak, so inadequate, so insufficient. He was afraid and he was trembling. And his speech and his message were not received as words of wisdom, but as nonsense. And so I think it will be helpful for us to think about briefly why it was 
the case. First, the Corinthians were very proud people. Uh, Corinth in those days was one of the metrop- uh, metropolis of the ancient world. According to some estimates, uh, there were something like uh, uh, three-quarter of a million people residing in Corinth. And that city was famous for its wealth and culture. Uh, Corinth hosted world-famous sporting events. And Corinth by this time had become the center of political power in Achaia. Achaia is what the Roman people called the whole region of Greece. And a great uh, part of Roman Empire's economy passed through Corinth because of its important harbors and trade routes. And that meant that Corinth was a wealthy city. It was an influential city. It was a cultured city. And the cultured and the wealthy upper-class Corinthians laughed at Paul's message because the message that Paul proclaimed, the gospel message says that God, God cannot be bribed with money the way that pagan gods could be bribed with money. The gospel message says that the wealthy and the poor alike are the same before God in their sinfulness, in their desperate need for forgiveness and for salvation. And Paul's gospel proclaimed that they have nothing to contribute to their salvation. You know, one thing about really rich people, they think money solves everything. Uh, And indeed, in this world, there are really few problems that money can't solve. And so when the cultured and the wealthy Corinthians heard Paul's message, they laughed at him. They thought it was sheer foolishness, not to mention the fact that Paul's savior was a poor carpenter who died a criminal's death. And we're supposed to put our trust in that man? Ridiculous, they thought. But Corinth wasn't just famous. Corinth was also infamous. Because on the summit of a high mountain behind the city, there stood a temple of Aphrodite, as the Greeks called her, the Romans called her Venus. And Aphrodite was the goddess of love. And what that meant for the life of Corinth was this. Every night, about 1,000 female temple slaves roamed the streets of Corinth as prostitutes. Uh, That's what it meant for them to worship Aphrodite, uh, the goddess of love. And every night, 1,000 female slaves, uh, temple slaves, descended and, and roamed the streets. And so that in the first century, this was very well known, And throughout the Roman Empire in the first century, to say Corinthian meant sexual immorality. And when we read Paul's two letters to Corinth, when we read 1st and 2nd Corinthians, we see clearly there the, the urgent pastoral problems that were created by the Corinthian mindset in the church. Now, these are some of the challenges that Paul is up against. Proud, arrogant Worshippers of money, dismissing and scoffing at the message of the gospel on the one hand, and set, on the other hand, a rampant 
gross sexual immorality. And in addition, of course, you all know, Paul was threatened everywhere he proclaimed the gospel. He was ostracized. He was hated. And that wasn't a good day. On other days, he was imprisoned. He was beaten and left for dead. And he had to be thinking as he arrived in Corinth, would Corinth be any different? You know, Paul, uh, he was just like us. And normal people, even if we have the courage to face difficulties and endure hardship, we don't look forward to it. We don't enjoy pain per se. What do you suppose was going through Paul's mind? Everywhere he went, he suffered for the sake of the gospel. And of course, Paul had to be thinking about it. Would Corinth be any different? You know, this, this is enough to discourage even the most stout-hearted person. No wonder, no wonder Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, and I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. But what's surprising is that in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, in that very passage, Paul adds these words. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. You see, the reason why we look up to Paul and admire him is not that he was some sort of a superhuman who was untouched by the pain and the trials of life. Paul felt them very intimately in his heart. He felt them in his body. And Paul was overwhelmed. You know, that's what we are reading, both here in Acts 18 and in First and Second Corinthians. Here, here is a man who, in his deep love for the Lord Jesus, he was willing to face anything and everything. Yes, he was. And yet... He was overwhelmed. And the reason why we admire Paul is not that because he never knew a day of suffering, but that he knew what it meant to suffer. He knew how weak and how insufficient he was for his task, but he also knew God. You know, he was, of course, well-versed in scriptures as a rabbi and then as a servant and an apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ. So he must have known passages like Psalm 910, where you read, and those who know your name put their trust in you. For you, O Lord, have not forsaken those who seek you. That's why we admire Paul. Not that he was untouched by life's hardship and trials. But he trusted the Lord. He leaned on the Lord. And so here Paul faces daunting challenges. And the second thing we see is how God answers those challenges. We read here that Paul found a Jew named Aquila, recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. 
Now, Claudius, he was Rome's fourth emperor, and he reigned during the years 41 through 54 AD. Uh, he was the grandson of Mark Antony. Yes, that Mark Antony of Mark Antony and Cleopatra fame. Um, and this emperor Claudius, uh, interestingly, was a childhood friend of Herod Agrippa. Uh, we ran into him a few occasions through our studies in the book of Acts. And it may have been due to Herod Agrippa's influence who reigned over the Jews uh, in Palestine that Claudius issued an imperial edict where he protected the Jews' uh, religious freedom throughout the empire. Uh, the, Romans, the Roman Empire had a policy. Uh, wherever they went and conquered, uh, they, one of the reasons they were so successful was that whenever they conquered their people, they more or less left them to do their own things and live as they had always lived, provided they pay taxes to Rome, that they provide military for Rome's military endeavors, and they worship the emperor. Uh, but uh, Claudius made a special exception for the Jewish people, and he allowed the Jewish people to not worship the Roman emperor or the religions of Rome, but he allowed the Jews to stay true and faithful to their faith of Judaism. And so that was a special dispensation that, that Claudius had uh, granted to the Jewish people. But the Roman historian Suetonius writes in his book, Life of Claudius, quote, as the Jews were making constant disturbances at the, at the instigation of Crestus, Claudius banished them from Rome. And so what you're reading is that the Jewish people were fighting over one called Crestus. And many historians realize that that is actually Christus misspelled, uh, because Suetonius, the Roman historian, was not himself familiar with Jesus Christ. So he spelled Christus, Christus, but in Latin it would practically sound the same. You know, what's interesting is that throughout human history, there was a great variance and allowances made for uh, spelling. And uh, it's only recently in the last few decades with the ascendancy of Microsoft Word and its tyrannical auto spell check that our spellings have become fixed in stone. But throughout history, spellings were often variable. And the Suetonius Roman historian writes that the Jews were fighting over Christus or Chris, uh, Christus, Christ. And they made such nuisance, they caused such disturbance that Claudius expelled them from Rome. What that means is that faith in Christ caused Aquila and Priscilla their home and their business. Can you imagine what a, what a shocking loss that must have been? And yet God in his wisdom and providence, God brought Aquila and Priscilla, this husband and wife duo who loved the Lord sacrificially, and he made them to be Paul's partners. And imagine what an encouragement this must have been for Paul. 
He who came to the city feeling weak, insufficient, in fear and in trembling to have found this, this committed and faithful Christian couple. And note also that Paul was a tent maker as Aquila and Priscilla. In those days, it was expected for rabbis to have a trade uh, to provide for themselves. And uh, Paul was no exception. He was a tent maker. And uh, Paul worked with them, uh, with Aquila and Priscilla, making tents during the week to provide and support himself. And he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and tried to persuade Jews and Greeks. Uh, Paul writes in his New Testament letters that once a church is established, he expects the congregation to support their ministers, both as a way of gratitude and as a way of uh, supporting the kingdom work. But Paul, as a missionary, coming into the places where there were no Christians, and remember, by and large, and there were a few exceptions, but by and large, Initially, all the rich and the influential people laughed at the gospel message. And so by and large, initially, the converts were made up of the poor, the slaves, the dregs of society. And Paul felt that it was not right to burden them. And so he, he worked. He worked with his hands and he supported himself uh, because he did not want to burden the church. Uh, and so, so in, according to their week, Sunday through Friday, he would work with his hands. And on the Sabbath day, he would go to the synagogues and, and try to persuade the Jews and the Greeks. But once again, you see that God provides. Because we read here that when Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia, Paul was occupied with the word testifying to the Jews that Christ was Jesus. And so when we read 2 Corinthians chapter 11, we read that, that, that uh, Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia, bringing with them not only the news of gospel progress in Macedonia, but that the Macedonians had collected an offering, a love gift, and sent them by Silas and Timothy. And so Silas and Timothy came to Paul bringing the gifts of the Macedonians, which allowed Paul to be freed from the necessity to work with his hands and instead devote himself to the work of proclaiming the gospel. And so their support enabled Paul to proclaim Jesus full time. Still, uh, Paul's work in Corinth was slow and difficult. He went to the synagogue uh, trying to persuade the Jews, but once again they hardened their hearts. And we read here that the Jews once again opposed and reviled him, so much so that Paul saw no way forward for the Jews. And he said he was turning his attention to the Gentiles, and he did. But notice what happened. Precisely at the moment when Paul could see no way forward with the Jews, precisely at the moment when Paul thought his ministry was stuck, 
going nowhere, that's when we read Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue. Now, the ruler of the synagogue is a Jew. Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed in the Lord together with his entire household. And many of the Corinthians, hearing Paul, believed and were baptized. Do you see what's happened? Just at the moment when Paul that his ministry was going nowhere. No one is listening. No one is responding. That his labors are having no impact. Just at that moment, God, God brings about a harvest. I mean, do you see here how God's strength is made perfect in Paul's weakness? And so first, we saw Paul's daunting Challenges And second, we saw how God answers these challenges. And thirdly and finally, uh, we can draw some lessons and some applications from this passage. And that is, the promise holds us. The promise holds us. Now, once again, um, you know that Paul... Paul has on numerous occasions already, he has experienced how vicious and violent the unbelieving Jews can get. And now, as Paul rebukes the Jews and turns to the Gentiles, you know he had to be thinking, what will happen now? And I think you can clearly see that Paul was afraid. That's why verse 9 is so important. Verse 9, And the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision. Now when Luke says the Lord, uh, throughout the gospel according to Luke and Acts, Luke typically means Lord Jesus. So it is the Lord Jesus speaking to Paul one night in a vision. And Jesus says, to this, to this man who has suffered greatly, to this man who is overwhelmed, to this man who is f- full of fear, who is worried, who is anxious, the Lord Jesus comes with this grace and with this comfort, and he says, do not be afraid, but go on speaking and do not be silent, for I and with you and no one will attack you to harm you you know that sounds very much like the kinds of things that you would hear from Jehovah in the Old Testament doesn't it do not be afraid for I am your God do not be afraid do not fear I am with you and this is the Lord Jesus coming to Paul both in the power of his divinity in his in his glory and with the tenderness and the gentleness of a shepherd who knows that his sheep is suffering and he says do not be afraid for i am with you and it's this promise that holds paul and so you read he stayed a year and six months teaching the word of God among them. 
Now, to be sure, the Jews did make an attempt to harm him. They accused Paul of persuading people to worship God contrary to the law. Now, remember how Claudius had made it legal for the Jews to continue to worship as their fathers. So Judaism was the only religion that was legal um, uh, uh, other than the Roman uh, cult. So the Jewish people are now bringing the accusation against Paul, saying that Paul's religion is not Judaism. His religion is not legal according to the Roman law, and they are trying to engineer and maneuver the, the governor, proconsul Galileo, to get Paul into a legal uh, predicament. But Galileo saw through the matter, and he refused to intervene. You know, this is how Jesus kept his promise to Paul. No one will attack you to harm you. Jesus kept his promise. And notice what else Jesus says. Jesus also said, I have many in this city who are my people. You see, when God appoints people to eternal life, God draws them to Jesus through the preaching of the gospel. So Jesus' death and resurrection for the sake of sinners are preached. And those who are destined and appointed for eternal life, they hear the message of Jesus' death and resurrection. They hear in that message that we as sinners, we have nothing to offer God. We have no gifts to bring God. And the best that we can bring to God have been stained with our sin. But that God has himself provided for us righteousness, And with that righteousness, we can come because the righteousness that Jesus has provided for us is the perfect righteousness. And so we don't come to God with our lousy gifts. And the best that we can bring to God have been stained with our sin. So we don't come to God with our merit, with our gifts, with our offering. But we come to God with the perfect sacrifice of Jesus Christ, with his perfect righteousness, and with what God has given to us and we offer up back to God and we have peace with God. It's that Jesus' death and resurrection that saves us. And the people who have been appointed for eternal life, they hear this message. They do not say that it is foolishness, but they recognize God's wisdom and they believe, and they are saved. And they are made to belong to Jesus. That is why, that is why Paul, once again, he writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, he says, I came to you with much weakness, trembling and in fear. But he also says in that passage, I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Now, by the way, um, one of the surest ways that you can evaluate a preacher's ministry is to listen to his sermons and and try to see what he makes of Jesus' death and resurrection. Um, It's shocking today that many who call themselves preachers uh, 
For them, Jesus' death and resurrection are but afterthoughts. But the true, uh, true indication, the evidence of a faithful ministry is to what extent does the cross, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ have the central place? And that is why Paul, amidst, amidst much weakness and, and, feel, and knowing and feeling that he was insufficient, he decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I think as we read this passage, we can't help but see how relevant, how, how this passage hits home for us. Because we also know discouragement and fear, don't we? We are also mocked and ridiculed for our faith. And that's on a good day. And there are many believers throughout the world for whom faith in Jesus Christ is very costly. And we, we are discouraged. We feel so weak, so insufficient, so inadequate. And we are afraid that harm might come to us if we stay true and faithful to the Lord Jesus. But let me say this to you, loved ones, that nothing can harm us while Christ holds us. Do not be discouraged. Do not be silent. Because precisely where and at the moment where we see no way forward, precisely at the moment when we feel stuck and we are not accomplishing anything, that's when God provides. Because God's strength is made perfect in our weakness. So do not be discouraged. Do not be silent. And I think there is a larger lesson as well because that principle is true of all of life's hardship. You know, it's almost amazing and it's heartwarming and so encouraging to see that Paul was overwhelmed. You know, this amazing, powerful, faithful, spiritual hero, he was overwhelmed, he was afraid. And that gives us the freedom and it gives us the space and the room to say, you know, I also feel overwhelmed. I'm also afraid. I am also scared. Well, loved ones, hear this. Are you afraid? Are you overwhelmed by life? Know this, that Jesus holds on to you. And so let his promises hold you. Matthew 28, 20. Jesus promised, I am with you always to the end of the age. Isn't that exactly what Jesus said to Paul? He says that to you, I am with you to the end of the age. Hebrews 13, 5, I will never leave you or forsake you. That's his promise to you. And let Jesus hold you.
Let his promises hold you. In Jesus' name, amen. Now let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for your instruction today, and we thank you that though we are very weak and though we are very insufficient, though we are not up to the task, it is never up to our strength. It is, not, it is never up to our, uh, our devices. It is never up to our resources. But you are our power. You are our wisdom. You are our trust and our stay. And so, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we pray that you would hold us in your loving and gracious hands, that when we meet trials and difficulties, whether it is in our service to you or whether it is in our day-to-day struggles, may we be comforted by the fact that you are with us. And in our weakness, your strength will be made perfect. And in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.